dismissed. Let's stand together. It's good to be in the house of the Lord tonight. Turn, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter number 12, verses 2 and 3. We'll read a few verses and get started here tonight. It's good to see everybody in the house of God. Amen. Here tonight, thankful to be at church tonight and experience his goodness and presence. And I have felt that. Amen. I felt that through the songs that have been sung and the worship that has gone forth. I am strengthened. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 2 and verse 3. You shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which you shall possess serve their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. And you shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire. And you shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. This is a passage as the children of Israel are moving into Canaan land and they were going to confront a completely different style of worship, a worship system. And so there is a direction that is given by God. And so tonight for a few moments, we're going to talk about Christmas status. Christmas status, Christmas strata. There are different levels. There's different data. And so for a few moments tonight, we're going to look at some of those things. Lord, we thank you and praise you. We ask that you would direct us tonight in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. you. can be seated. We are in the Christmas season or holiday season, whatever it is. There is differing opinions about this particular season. Some people don't like the fact that Christ is in Christmas, and so there's also a secular component, and so many people call it the holiday season. Whatever you call it, it would be good to know just a little bit about it. Neither the Messiah nor any of his apostles ever observed this particular holiday, nor the New Testament church, so it begs the question of how did it arrive, and what are the elements that went into this particular day? This day has been observed for thousands of years before the Messiah was even born. So that's a good question to start with tonight. How did, this, how did the mysterious rites and ceremonies how did it, that surround this day, where did those come from? What about the Christmas tree, the Yule log, the mistletoe, and holly wreaths? Are any of these customs truly Christian in origin? And what about fat and jolly old St. Nick or Santa Claus? What about him? Where does he come from? So tonight our, our task is to look at the different levels of strata and then make some practical application to how we should respond. There are different levels and they have different meanings in each area. So we're going to look at some biblical data we're going to look at some pagan data that converted to Christian data. And when I say Christian data, I'm referring to the Catholic Church primarily. And then there's also secular data. So there's different stratas from biblical to pagan to the Catholicization of the holiday to secular data. So let's look at the biblical data first. In the Old Testament... There were places called groves. They were often designated as the high places. We've read this in our opening text. They were places that were designated as places of worship 
to worship the pagan gods Baal and Astarte. Uh, Baal, I'm going to show you a couple of pictures here if you'd like to see Baal and Astarte. You can go ahead and throw that up there anytime you would like. Baal was the god of fertility. Oh, this is Astarte. Isn't she beautiful? Wow. This is Astarte. Or, in some cases, she is called Asheroth. She is the goddess of fertility, sex, love, and war, all wrapped up in the same package. So, uh, they would worship her. They would set up groves. They would erect uh, the image of her. And then Baal was the god of fertility, weather, rain, wind, lightning, seasons, war, sailors. He was the lord of the pantheon. That would be Baal is the next one. So you can show us that. So there he is. That is, I think, in the Louvre Museum that has been dug up from some ruins somewhere. There's another picture of him. Usually he's depicted as holding, you can show the other picture, he's holding lightning in his left hand, and then it looks like he's got a mace of something over his head. So both of these were main figures in Old Testament idolatry, the groves, and idols because they were connected to fertility, and fertility was connected to agriculture. The idea was that if you worshiped Baal and Astarte in the fertility, sex, love, they, that was connected to agriculture. This is why there were temple prostitutes. This is why there was a lot of immorality, because they fused those, those things together. And so as the children of Israel are going into Canaan land, they're going to confront some of these places where these ceremonies would take place. Uh, this was going to be a constant problem. This was going to be an Achilles heel for the children of Israel because these gods, although they look pretty insignificant to us, uh, look like little figurines, and that's Baal. You mean Elijah fought the prophets of Baal, and that was Baal? Yes, but they had something that was physical, and they worshiped that. The God of the Hebrews was not physical uh, unless he appeared in some way, shape, or form to them. And so they were constantly wanting to place their trust in things that they could grasp. And so it constantly was a struggle. And because their seasons also were connected to agriculture and rain and drought and what have you, sometimes it was very easy to get their eyes off of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and on to the gods of Baal and Astarte that were around them. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse number 1 says, Hear you the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of the heaven. For the, heaven, heaven, for the, heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must be needs born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them for they cannot do evil. So they would erect these images in these groves and in these places on the high hills and they would offer sacrifices, and there was a lot of immorality connected and associated with that. These are just a few scriptures of the biblical data in the Old Testament about Baal and Astarte 
and, and about the whole religion that was associated with them. They were very, very significant, and they meant something primarily for those people in that context and in that time. In the New Testament, there is nothing that is even stated about trees or groves or anything like that. You've got an Old Testament. You've got 400 silent years. You see the rise of the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious groups, and a lot of other things that take place in that 400 silent years. So by the time you get to the New Testament, you've got different historical empires that are arising. They're not Canaan anymore. Uh, they're not they're not the struggle that you see in the Old Testament. Now you have the Greek Empire, the Hellenistic influences, and you have the Roman influences. So this is another context. So you have, you have to put things in their context. You have the biblical data of the Old Testament and what that means. In the New Testament, there's nothing about trees, and the interaction of the church to culture is played out around meats offered to idols. That is a playover that takes place in these new civilizations whereby most religious groups and orders, even the Hebrews, had a, a dietary law. They had a system of sacrifice. And so part of that ritual was that you would eat some of the sacrifice. So when somebody brought a sacrifice to God in the temple worship, they would eat part of the meat and sacrifice it to the rest of God. And the thought was, because of that combined sharing, that there was a closer connection to the sacrifice that you were giving. That's an Old Testament ceremonial law. Well, in the early church, most of the early Christians were Jewish. So in the Roman and the Greek empires, there were still sacrifices going on and meats offered to idols because they had their own pantheon. In the Old Testament, Baal and Astarte were not in the New Testament, but there were new gods to take the place in the pantheon, in that Hellenistic, in that Greek world, and in that Roman world. The Greek world had their gods. The Roman world took the same gods and gave them different names. And so you had the gods of mythology. Uh, and so they would offer meats to those idols. Now, probably what was happening in that early church is those meats offered to idols were probably uh, more economical and, and you could have access to them. And so some in the church were eating the meats that were offered to idols. And so the church came together and had a council in Acts chapter 15, and they talked about it, how this burgeoning church that now has Jews and Gentiles, what are we going to do? with some of our ceremonial laws and traditions that don't apply between Jewish and Gentiles. So in Acts chapter 15, they had a meeting and they wrote a letter. And this was the letter that they wrote. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, Men that have hazarded their lives to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent, therefore, Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. Here it is. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which, if you keep yourselves, you shall do well, fare ye well." So in the Old Testament, 
the way this culture and church impact came into play was through meats offered to idols. In the New Testament, there is no specific reference to uh, a Christmas day. There's no specific date or a celebration of birth. And so that kind of wraps up the biblical data. So then how do we get from the biblical data into uh, the pagan origins and then it go from pagan origins into Christmas and uh, Christian status? And again, when I say Christian status, I'm, I'm largely talking about the Catholic Church. Dating back centuries, even before Christ, there were a lot of cultures that were doing a lot of different things. Some of them were connected to religious uh, significance, some of them not. Cultures brought evergreen trees, plants, leaves into their homes upon the arrival of the winter solstice, which occurs in northern hemisphere between December 21st and December 22nd. The winter solstice is going to be the shortest day of winter. So every day after that, the days get longer as, as it is projecting again toward the spring. And so cultures would bring these things into their homes based on that winter stolsis. Although specific practices were different in each country and culture, the symbolization was generally the same. Why were they doing that? They were celebrating the return of life at the beginning of winter's decline. Winter is declining, spring is coming, and so they would bring these things into their home. Particularly, those things that were green, evergreens, those things that were producing in the winter, and that's some of the reasons why they would participate and bring these things into their home. And there were a lot of different cultures. The Egyptians valued evergreens as a symbol of life's victory over death, they brought green date palm leaves into their home around the time of winter solstice. The Romans uh, had a public festival called Saturnalia, which lasted one week beginning on December 17th and included a variety of celebrations around the winter solstice. Now, Saturnalia was different than some of those ancient things I'm, I'm starting with. Saturnalia was, was pretty much a carnival atmosphere. It was an ancient Roman festival in honor of the god Saturn, and it was held on the 17th of December of the Julian calendar, and it was expanded to go through the 23rd. So it was almost a week-long celebration. It was uh, at the temple of Saturn. They celebrated with a sacrifice at the Roman Forum, and they had a public banquet followed by private gift-giving continual partying and a carnival atmosphere that overturned Roman social norms. Gambling was permitted during this time. Masters provided table service for uh, slaves as it was seen as a time of liberty for both slaves and freedmen alike. A common custom is they would elect the king of Saturnalia who would give orders to people which were to be followed and preside over the merrymaking. The gift exchanges were usually gag gifts or small figurines made of wax or pottery called sigillaria. And the Roman winter solstice was marked on the Julian calendar as December the 25th. 
So Saturnalia, now again, we've, we've looked at, <laughs> you're looking at different stratas. And in terms of interpreting those, you have to understand those particular biblical datas. We, we went from the biblical data. Now, now we're looking at uh, the pagan origins and more particularly the Roman origin of Saturnalia. That's more closely connected to December the 25th. This brings us to the origin, really, of Christmas. It doesn't start until much after the New Testament church. Uh, in the book History of Rome by Michael Grant, we read this revelation. In Rome, the divinity of the sun came very early on and then centuries afterwards in the superb dome of Hadrian's Pantheon. The Pantheon is an incredible building. It has a central opening surrounded by star-like rosettes representing the solar orb. This was to the sun god. Before long, the emperor Aurelian established a massive temple of the unconquerable sun as the central and focal point of the entire religious system of the state. And the birthday of the god was to be on December 25th. So Saturnalia is where there is a date that is established. It was to the sun god, the pantheon, and then they had a big celebration, carnival-like atmosphere. It was very licentious. Uh, it was very immoral. Uh, it was very carnival-like. So the 25th was the establishment of the birthday of the sun god. That brings us to, after many emperors, and as you know, in Roman history, the emperors, especially in the first centuries, persecuted the church, burned them at the stake. Nero was a madman. Caligula was off his rocker. Uh, the emperors were just nothing but a mess. Uh, but there came an emperor by the name of Constantine. Constantine reigned from 306 to 337, and he was known as the first Christian emperor. Uh, and that is questionable, but he was the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. He did that at the end of his life on his deathbed. He lived much of his life as a pagan and a uh, catechumen. A catechumen is uh, a person that goes to, in the Catholic religion, it's like Sunday school. So he spent time in the catechumen, so he had an understanding of the Catholic religion and faith, uh, and then he was later baptized on his deathbed by Eusebius. He did play a very, very influential role on a lot of things. He gave the proclamation of the Edict of Milan in 313, which declared tolerance for Christianity in the Roman Empire. Up to this point, the Romans were very intolerant of Christianity. Uh, and again, when I say Christianity, I'm speaking largely of Catholicism. So the Edict of Milan was significant. He, can, he convoked the First Council of Nicaea in 325, which produced the statement of Christian belief known as the Nicene Creed. Constantine was a part of that. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre was built on his orders at the purported site of Jesus' tomb in Jerusalem. It's still there to this day. His mother was involved in that and became the holiest place in Christendom in terms of, of people making pilgrimages there. It's really, really kind of sad when you go into that building. Uh, it will really shake you because of, of the attention that people devote to 
just all kinds of, of things. We have felt more in this service than you would ever, ever feel in that building and people on their knees uh, and they're worshiping in a way that is, has no connection to what we felt in the house of God today. So he was historically referred to as the first Christian emperor and he did, he did favor the Christian church. While some modern scholars debate his beliefs and even his comprehension of Christianity, he is considered a venerated state a saint in uh, the Catholic Church. So, now you have Constantine who is rising to power and Deus Sol Invictus was still at its height. This is the worship of the sun god. And the portrait of the sun god was on the coins during Constantine's reigns. There was a there was a fusion of a worship of the sun god, and now Constantine rises to prominence. And it must have been in this time with the intent to transform the significance of an existing sacred date that the birthday of Jesus, which had been celebrated in the East on January 6th, although nobody really knows when that was, it was placed in Rome on December 25th, the date of the birthday celebration of Sol Invictus. So we're beginning now to see a picture of, of where we come to the idea of Christmas and December the 25th. This was in the 4th century after the Messiah. So this was in the 300s. At this time, the church, the Catholic church, moved to incorporate the birthday of the sun god into the so-called Christian calendar and converted his birthday into the birth of Jesus himself. That which was distinctly and definitely pagan was now transformed into something that was Christian or Catholic. Constantine had a great, great influence. Will Durant, a renowned historian in his massive work, The Story of Civilization, wrote in volume three entitled Caesar and Christ, Christianity did not destroy paganism, it adopted it. The Greek mind dying came to a transmigrated life in the theology and liturgy of the church. The Greek mysteries passed down into the impressive mystery of the mass. Other pagan cultures contributed to this syncretic result. Syncretic means there's just a lot of streams that are flowing into all of this, and we'll see some of those things in a minute. From Egypt came the idea of a divine trinity. From Egypt, the adoration of the mother and child. From Phrygia came the worship of the great mother. So all of these streams were flowing now into this new imagined uh, celebration of Christmas. A transfer of pagan origins were absorbed and overtaken by the Catholic Church. And it became the new face of paganism, only the names were changed. And in some cases, as in Easter Sunday, even the old pagan names were left in place. That's why uh, people say Easter and it's on the calendar and you're not going to get away from it, but uh, we put it on our calendar as Resurrection Sunday <laughs> because we want to focus on the resurrection. If we're going to talk about it, it's the resurrection. Um, the elements of this synchristic day comes from all over the world. You have the trees, the trees bringing a tree into the home and decorating it. Uh, where does that come from? Most people have heard that the Christmas tree originates in the Tannenbaum and is sort of a vestige of Teutonic vegetation worship. This is partially true, 
However, the custom of using pine and other evergreens ceremonially was well established at the Roman Saturnalia even earlier in Egypt, writes Alexander Hislop in The Two Babylons. The Christmas tree, now so common among us, was equally common in pagan Rome and pagan Egypt. In Egypt, the tree was a palm tree. In Rome, it was the fir, the palm tree denoting the pagan Messiah, the fir re referring to him in a different name. Uh, the mother of Adonis, the sun god, and the great mediatorial divinity was mystically said to have been changed into a tree and when in that state to have brought forth her divine son. If the mother was a tree, the son must have been recognized as the man, the branch, and this entirely accounts for the putting of the Yule log into the fire on Christmas Eve and the appearance of the Christmas tree the next morning. So the Yule log, you would light uh, a Yule log, and many believe that the log's flame summoned the sun's return and drove away evil spirits. Over time, Christianity adopted this Norse tradition, and the light from the Yule log came to represent Jesus as light in the darkness. The idea of decorating homes on holidays is both worldwide and age-old. The Saturnalian laurel, the Teutonic holly, the Celtic mistletoe, the Mexican poinsettia have all attached themselves to this ceremony. Many of the plants used at Christmas are symbols of fertility, evergreen, with its ability to return verdure, that's green vegetation, in the barren months is appropriate, but by far the most interesting is the holly, the ivy, the mistletoe. Holly, with its pricking leaves, white flowers, red berries, symbolizes the male reproductive urge. In fact, in the English carols, the holly is the male and the ivy is the female. The use of the plants were most likely borrowed by Christians along with other customs of the Roman Saturnalia. The mistletoe and kissing under the mistletoe was connected to Saturnalian sexual licentiousness because, again, it was carnival-like and everybody could just uh, have body immoral behavior as long as there was mistletoe around. So that was connected. And what about dear old Santa Claus? Well, this fat and jolly elfkin can be traced back to other, another ancient pagan Norse legend. Some people think it's connected to St. Nicholas of Asia Minor, but it's actually connected to Odin or Woden, who left special gifts during the Yuletide season under the evergreen tree. So you can see how a lot of things are entering into uh, what many people celebrate uh, during a Christmas season. Now, it's fascinating to know that the Puritans were Christians who attempted to reform the church during the 1600s. They did not believe Christmas should be observed. This baptism of pagan rites and festivals by the Roman Catholic Church and a vast majority of Protestant churches was totally rejected by the Puritans. William Prynne, during the time of King Charles I, said, Our Christmas lords of misrule, together with dancing, mummery, stage players, and such other Christmas disorders now in use with Christians, were derived from these Roman Saturnalian and Bacchanalian festivals, which should call all pious Christians eternally to abominate them. This was in the book of Christmas folklore, page 8. Because of his attitude toward Christmas and pagan rituals still observed by professing Christian church, 
William Prynne was placed in a pillory and his ears were cut off. So there you go. In the 16th century, uh, the Puritans hated the holiday. Uh, in England, under Oliver Cromwell, Christmas and other saints' days were banned, and in New England, it was illegal to celebrate Christmas for about 25 years in the 1600s. Forget people saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. He said, if you want to look at the real war on Christmas, you've got to look at the Puritans because they banned it. So you have, you have all of these that integrate into this time of year through different historical strata and data. And it's, it's very important to understand the different strata. The Old Testament has a, def, a definite strata. The pagan origins have a strata. Understanding how Constantine and the Roman Empire took it over and then Christianized a lot of those things uh, have an effect as well. So you have all of these, these elements, holly and ivy, mistletoe, Christmas tree, poinsettia. Poinsettia comes, comes from... Uh, Mexico that enters into this. And there's all kinds of folklore about how that happens. A little girl wanted to give a gift to baby Jesus but could only find weeds, which miraculously changed into poinsettias. A young boy who brought weeds to a Christmas Eve mass as an offering where they too turned into poinsettias. So the poinsettias integrate from Mexico into this. So there's cultures from, from every part of the world whether they were ancient practices that they were doing before, have now all been absorbed into this particular holiday. There is the Yule log. The Yule was the darkest time of year. People celebrated because the days would start getting longer after the solstice. And so the Yule log was symbolic of the sun's emergence from its southern reaches and the land's rebirth. You just Christianized all of this stuff. Lights and light. So it started with the Yule log. They would light the Yule log. And then at some point, um, they would put candles on the trees, which was not very safe, putting candles on trees. Today's holiday lights have evolved quite a bit. Since Thomas Edison displayed the first electric lights outside his laboratory in 1880, the tradition of using lights was most likely originated in Germany during medieval times with the burning of the Yule log. And then they used candles. Uh, and then now you have all kinds of different types of things. Uh, Thomas Edison was, was uh, one of the starters of that particular tradition in 1879, but only wealthy people could afford them because they were so expensive. The use of electric lights became more affordable and widespread by the 1920s. Then the Great Depression hit and it was followed by two world wars. Some people thought that the Christmas tree and the holiday lights represented peace and hope. And so they found solace in these traditions and using these lights. Whether it's incandescent now, LED, icicle, retro, micro, rope, mesh, projectors, candle lamps, luminaries, battery, twinkling, white, most likely, they're all part of the decorative lighting industry. Uh, <clears throat> so you have all of these things feeding into this particular day. Now, I want to look at some secular data 
as well. So we've looked at the biblical data. We've looked at how, does, how do we go from the pagan origins into the Catholic or Christian traditions, and I'm fusing those two together. And then what is the secular data? Well, the secular data is there's a bunch of controversy. In the year 2000 in Eugene, Oregon, Oregon, the city manager declared a Christmas tree could not be put on city property because it was a religious symbol that violated the separation of church and state. In 2004, in Bellevue City Hall, their Christmas tree was called a giving tree to make everybody feel welcome. In 2005, the city of Boston began calling their Christmas tree a holiday tree, and in 2005, the hardware chain Lowe's began labeling their trees holiday trees and family trees. In all of these cases, there was such strong public outrage that the decisions have been reversed, but the controversy still remains with some believing the use of Christmas tree in public places amounts to religious discrimination. So companies like Sears, Walmart, Target, Best Buy, Gap, PetSmart, and Home Depot have all switched to using the term holiday in place of Christmas at one time or another. You'll even find websites devoted to this topic, such as defendchristmas.com, where there's always articles about the infringement upon the religious practice of Christ Mass. If that's not enough, there's yearly controversy regarding natural versus artificial Christmas trees because some environmentalists argue that no kind of Christmas tree should be used at all because you're cutting down a tree. Uh, so there is a secular component that is against Christmas because it has Christ in it. So you you got you've got a lot you got a lot of streams in here uh, and and thoughts that go in here. So now I want to I want to get into the praxis or the function of how uh, we should conclude when you look at all of that history. How should we, as a church body and a people, how should we respond to all of that? Understanding that the Old Testament has a certain biblical data. You've got the New Testament that is a different context, and then following the New Testament into the 300s, you have a conversion of pagan to Christianity, and then after many, many centuries later, you've got all those streams of thought, and it's all wrapped together into this particular season. So here's my conclusions. Number one, one should know the origins of something. I think that's a fair assessment. No matter what you're involved in, it doesn't hurt to say, I want to know where that came from. What's the origin of it? So that's significant. Number two, one should be intuitive about those origins and not fall prey to cherry picking. Because if you say, well, I'm against that because of the origin, and yet you're over here doing something else that is just as pagan. For example, I looked up, because I'd heard this, and I wanted to make sure that I was balanced in my presentation here tonight, and so I looked up a, a party company called Pump It Up, and I think we had one in town. It's, it's not available anymore. It's shut down. But Pump It Up has a section, historical section, talking about birthday cake, candles, and celebrations. I found it interesting that this started with the Egyptians, and it was in reference to Pharaoh's birthday, and further study implies that this was not their birth into the world, but their birth as a god 
When Egyptian pharaohs were crowned in ancient Egypt, they were considered to have transformed into gods. This was the moment in their lives that became more important than even their physical birth. Pagans such as the ancient Greeks believed that each person had a spirit that was present on the day of his or her birth. This spirit kept watch and had a mystic relation with the god on whose birthday that particular individual was born. So it started with the Egyptians, and then the Greeks provided the birthday candles. The Greeks offered many tributes and sacrifices to appease these gods. The lunar goddess Artemis was no different. As a tribute to her, the Greeks would offer up moon-shaped cakes adorned with lit candles to create the glowing radiance of the moon and perceived beauty of Artemis. They also symbolized the sending of a signal or prayer. Blowing out the candles with a wish is another way to send that message to the gods. Birthdays started as a form of protection. It is assumed that the Greeks adopted the Egyptian tradition of celebrating the birth of a god. They, like many other pagan cultures, thought that days of major change, such as these birthdays, welcomed evil spirits. So they lit candles in response to these spirits, almost as if they represented a light in the darkness. This implies that birthday celebration started as a form of protection. And there's more. The ancient Romans were the first to celebrate the birth of the common man. Birthdays were first, to, first considered a pagan ritual in Christian culture. It wasn't until the fourth century that Christians abandoned that way of thinking and began celebrating the birth of Jesus. And so there you have now birthday cakes and blowing out candles. So you can't cherry pick one thing and then be doing something else. You, <laughs> you have to be consistent about all of these practices, and some of them have very interesting origins. Now, once you know all the origins, you have to figure out what significance is attached to those origins. As blowing out candles, singing happy birthday, wasn't attaching any spiritual significance to it, but it's interesting for me to know that that does come from a pagan origin. See? So uh, those points are important. Number three, distance and the confluence of so many factors from the ancient pagan, Christian, and secular history have a way of watering down what meaning is given to each particular item of a season. We're talking centuries of poinsettias. The poinsettia to me is a pretty plant. I'm not connecting religious significance to it. And yet I should, at the same time, know the origin from which it comes from. It comes from Mexico, and it's a stream into Christmas from Mexico. Uh, and all these other things that people utilize. Number four, whatever you do should factor in all these reasons. Should factor in all of these reasons. Number five, standards come into play on a personal and local church level. So you have some things in the scripture that are commands, baptism in Jesus' name, 1 Corinthians 11, sexuality, we get commands from the scripture. You have church standards. There are some church standards that we establish boundaries. We don't wear jewelry or wedding bands or purity rings or any other kind of ring just because we stop at a watch. You, you could have a watch that's just as bad as a ring if it's a gaudy thing, right? <laughs> We just stop there because we know that it's a good place to stop. 
And so that's a standard, sleeve links. Where should sleeve links be? Well, you have to, you have, to have a reason and it has to make sense. So if you have an elbow, that's, that's an area then that makes sense. So there is a standard. Certain environments, there's a standard that is established based on those environments. And then there are personal convictions. There are things that is not a command of Scripture. It's not a church standard. But you may have a personal conviction uh, depending on where you came to God and what you were doing. And then some things you may have as a personal development. So that brings us all to the conclusion here today about the Christmas season and what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate. And my job is to present to you the biblical data so that you can understand the biblical data and the data from uh, the pagan origins to the Christian origins, all of the confluence of cultures all over the world from ancient cultures before Christ, all one big ball rolled up into one that has a lot of elements into it. So so how do we deal with all of those things? This church has drawn a line at the tree. Now, there's a history connected to that. And my understanding is at one point there was a tree on the platform. And my understanding is Sister Terry got a conviction about that. And so they took the tree off the platform. And then they, they didn't participate in Christmas at all. And some fasted on Christmas Day. They didn't do anything. And so uh, it kind of swung the other way. The centrality of the tree along with its image is what the church has taken a stand against. Now, there's so many other elements, poinsettias and everything else that goes with it. It's like, where do you draw a line? So the line has been drawn in this church at the tree now, when I pass by a tree, am I worshiping the tree? If I take a picture in front of a Christmas tree, am I worshiping the tree? If I'm driving by, looking at lights, no, I'm not, because I'm disassociated so much from those different contexts. I'm not in the same environment of the Canaanites and Hebrews and high places and Baal and Astarte. I'm not connected to that because it's so far removed from me, and yet I understand that there are some elements that bring about that. You understand what I'm saying? So where do you, where do you factor in? If you start going through and trying to make a long list of what is okay and not okay, you're going to have to get to the place where you become a Jehovah Witness because a Jehovah Witness doesn't do anything that is pagan, including birthdays. So what do you do? You can't cherry pick. You can't say, well, I'm against this and be emphatic about it. And yet you're, you're participating. And there's probably some things that we're doing we don't even know has pagan origins. And so now you're, unless you're going to do a deep dive into origins of paganism and try to figure out every single little thing that is pagan in origin and not participate in any way, shape, or form, you're going to go crazy. That's what you're going to do. You're going to lose your mind. So I think it's very important to know the origins of stuff. I think that's cool. I mean, that's why we've spent some time here, understanding all of that and figuring out then, okay, where are we going to draw the line in which it becomes uncomfortable to us? And what are we going to do when given all of that data? So as a local church, because of its history, the line that has been drawn is at 
the centrality of the tree. Now, some of you sacrificed the tree, and it's all over the place. <laughs> it's there, but it's not there. It's not in a central location, but it's everywhere else because you've sacrificed that dude. You've spread it around. So, <clears throat> you say, well, that, isn't that kind of uh, hypocritical? Well, we're just staying away from the centrality of the tree. That's the stand of the local church. And what you should do, here's, here's my advice. You should do seasonal decorating not for a particular day. The day after Christmas, you drive around town and see these people that try to stick their tree in the green can. Don't bring your tree down here and put it in the dumpster. Whatever you do, I'm being facetious. Maybe there was a tree that got dumped in the dumpster sometime, and I don't know who it is, but we've got cameras, and we're watching. <laughs> Seasonal decorating, not for a particular day. The season should be the winter season. So decorate your home so that it... It pertains to the winter. My wife does a great job. She's got a spring. She's got a summer. She's got a fall. And she's got a winter. And, and that, that, that flows. And it's nice because it represents the different times of the year, not a particular day. Find healthy alternatives to the season. Family, mealtime, controlled spending. Don't get so caught up in the commercialization of Christmas that you're going into debt. Some people work an entire year because they've spent so much money during the Christmas season that two weeks later, the kids are not even playing with what was bought. Spend your, if you're, if you're going to, the Bible says it's better to give than receive. So some of you may, some of you may not. But if you do, don't. Don't overspend and get yourself into debt over something that, that is so trivial, right? Limit it. If you give your children too much, you will enable them to, be, to think that they should just, is that all? shouldn't be that way. It should be, this is a blessing today to be with family and thank you, even if it's something small, that's meaningful, versus 50,000 gifts that are all the way up to the ceiling. I know, some of you grandparents. <laughs> that poor child has, there's no way he's going to get to all those Tonka trucks, toys, uh, Legos. So ha have some balance in that. Find healthy alternatives. What elements of the season that are biblically connected can you involve yourself in? There was something in here that had to, oh, let's see. I'm trying to get, okay. I'm missing some of my notes. Uh, part of my notes on the secular component 
was there are there are websites that are talking about secular ways that you can avoid, you can still participate in the season, but you can avoid any, any religious connotation. And the author was acknowledging it's, it's still there because there's still some song, Silent Night, Holy Night. That's all religious. Uh, oh, come all ye faithful. So, oh, Bethlehem, oh, Bethlehem. There's a lot of religious song, and, and this kind of infuriated this secularist because you, you can't get away from that. We would rather hear about old Jolly St. Nick, but instead you got some of this stuff inserted. So <laughs> there's, there's, <laughs> there's secular people saying you can participate without all the religiosity that is connected to it. Find ways that you can bring out biblical elements of the season. We do the same thing with Halloween. We call it Hallelujah Night. We do something that is connected, but it's an alternative. Find alternative ways. The consumerism of Christmas can be devastating. Buying on credit, unhappy. Uh, so don't get caught up in that track. So lastly, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the household of Chloe, that there are some contentions among us. Some people are going to do nothing, and that's perfectly fine. I support that. Some others are going to do other things, and that's fine if that's what you want to do. But... We're avoiding the centrality of the tree. We're drawing the line there. It's been drawn and established and set as a local church um, standard. We're not going to be contentious. We're going to respect people's personal convictions, and we're going to respect the standard of the church, and we're going to be aware of what we are doing and what things mean, and wherever possible, we're going to find healthy alternatives to that and that is a wrap. Let's stand together tonight and let's pray. Praise God. Lord, we thank you for your blessings and your goodness. And we thank you that you are the reason. If there is a season, you're the reason for the season. It's wrapped up in a lot of different things. But we magnify you and thank you because you are Emmanuel. You are God with us. And you're